0: We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper.
2: And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Good evening, everyone. My name Crick. I'll be reading tonight's scripture, which is coming from the very last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. It also happens to be the last book of the Bible. I'll give you all a second to turn to that. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, or ESV. And if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word? john to the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Grace and peace, I'm Jonah, the pastor of the students at Winston-Salem State University. I'm grateful to open God's word with you tonight. As I thought about, about being with you, somehow the words of um, Andrew Peterson's song, Is He Worthy, started ringing in my head. The song he wrote in This call and response form of questions and answers that help me think about what I'm teaching tonight. So I thought it actually might be helpful uh, to share some of what he sings with you. The first verse he says, Do you feel the world is broken? And then, of course, there's the response, We do. And then he says, Do you feel the shadows deepen? And the response, we do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do, and do you wish that you could see it? All made new, we do. Is creation groaning? It is, It's a new creation coming? It is, is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? He says, it is. And is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root, the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessings and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Some of you, I'm sure, like often I do, come to worship and feel the weight of a broken world. We live in a place where war seems endless and the toll of lives taken senselessly feels almost unbearable. The political landscape is so divisive it's It's hard for faithful Christians to figure out how to rightfully engage and and just to drive the streets of our city is a stark reminder of so many people in deep need. The nature of persistent sin is everywhere around us, and there is always more sickness and more death, and this, fam, is why this season of Advent is such good news for us as our world that feels full of hopelessness has a promise of hope to come. Advent is a tradition practiced by Christians drawn out of the scriptures to celebrate the waiting. And the word Advent comes from a a Latin term meaning the coming, which is why at Advent we look back to the promised first coming of Jesus and towards the promise that he is yet to come again. New Testament scholar Harrison Warren says, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. So more than lights in the yard at night or gifts under the tree, or even the meals that we share with those we love, This season is about the Christian longing for the very presence of God and the discipline of waiting. There is beauty in the waiting though because despite the difficulty of waiting, we're giving a a blueprint for how the story ends in the book of Revelation. Uh, Dr. John Lee describes Revelation as the apocalypse par excellence. Uh, He says it offers to us a picture of what is seen and, more importantly, what is unseen. It is a sacramental delight for the imagination, and if sacraments are visible signs and seals of invisible grace, he says that the book of Revelation fulfills that definition because its perspective penetrates situations and contexts with persistent encouragement. It shows us what is happening behind the scenes and what will happen in the days to come. The opening phrase of Revelation though, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ reflected upon in the season of Advent has to feel almost paradoxical for us. Knowing that Jesus has come and conquered and yet we wrestle with waiting for him to come and conquer yet again. Jesus is humanity's salvation, the very image of God the Father, and in him is the promised renewal of all things. Some of us come from traditions where some form of dispensational thought about the end times was taught, and most often it's used to suggest that revelation is is merely prophetic narrative, warning of some future experience, and yet I find some difficulty in accepting that this could be um, truly accurate because this would require us to completely ignore John's original audience, those who would have interpreted much of this letter as speaking not to some future hope, but speaking directly into the here and now of God's people. Revelation gives full disclosure to the story of, of God's redeeming grace. And while Genesis tells the story of God creating our world in beauty and glory, it also details its regression through the fall into sin and yet is a promise of one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Revelation then draws a beautiful conclusion to that story in how it ends and the promise of one who comes for us and the serpent is defeated, and our world is made new. So, why study the book of Revelation in Advent? Because while we wait, we can also rest in knowing that Jesus rules and reigns even now. In the first verse, we read that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Uh, This first verse begins what we often describe as the prologue of the book. Uh, It's a literary device that John uses uh, also in his introduction of the gospel. Uh, The prologue, though, is the place that we find detail about uh, whom the story is written, uh, who is writing, and even the audience to whom the author seeks to address. So this is the story about Jesus from Jesus to the people who serve Jesus. John describes it though as the revelation of Jesus. A revelation is to unveil something or to give disclosure. So while John's gospel is a historical narrative of the person and work of Jesus, revelation is intended to speak into the here and now of God's people and apply to our lives as a way for seeking to live in the way of Jesus. I'm not sure you noticed it yet though, but John says that there is something that Jesus has to speak to us. And as you drove to worship tonight, you might've saw as you made your way that there were some signs along the way in different shapes and sizes and colors, and there were lights that changed from red to yellow and green that guided the path you took. And this is precisely the message that is given to us in Revelation as the guidance to a completeness of a life of faith in Jesus. The second verse, though, is a resume builder. It gives credence to why we can believe what is written is true. So he describes himself as one who is a witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John's original audience would have immediately connected the idea of Jesus as the word of God to John's gospel. And the testimony of Jesus would imply that he knows what it means to have lived and given witness to him. Look at the third verse, though, because I think it helps give clarity to how it applies even to us. Because John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This fall in RUF, we've been working our way through the Book of Psalms with students. And what it means to be blessed has shown up repeatedly. And throughout the series, we've been deconstructing the faulty ideas of what it means to be blessed. I'm pretty sure though that my students are the only ones who've who've learned to see what it means to be blessed as reflective of only life's success and materialism. We've learned to equate marriage that's happy and loving and children that we're proud of, or even for pastors like me, vibrancy of thriving ministry, good health and careers to friend groups that are seemingly genuine with people who authentically care for each other. And don't let me forget, though, that living with some sense of financial resources for independence, but I gotta ask you, is this really what it means to be blessed? I mean, this might be an amazing way to find some false sense of self-sufficiency or even worse, a deservedness of self-righteousness, but fam, I gotta tell you, we can have all of these things in life and still be far from what it means to be blessed. There is a book of the Old Testament about this guy named Job. And Job checks all the boxes for what our world would call blessed. He uh, was rich, he had a wife and kids to brag about, he had friends and good health, and then, and what feels almost instantaneous, it's all gone. The money is gone, his kids are taken away, his wife leaves, his friends proven faithful. And though we know that it's Satan at work, we cannot forget that it is God himself who says to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? See, while it's easy for us to see that our world is full of sin and suffering, we forget that it's in our suffering that Christ identifies with us. Our suffering then is is not in vain, but the means by which we're being shaped and molded into the likeness of Jesus. And so while careers and marriages and, and good kids and living in good neighborhoods with comfort are great, only a life lived in faithful obedience to him is what it means to truly be blessed. In verses four through six, it reads, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. These verses are an introduction to us. John highlights that he is the one who is writing, writing to record a message that comes directly from God and written to the seven churches in the region of Asia. And as you read into the chapters that follow, you'll see John deliver seven messages to the churches that he likely knew well from his ministry as a local church pastor. And he greets them, though, in grace and peace, a phrase that is used frequently in the letters by Paul, the apostle, but also by Peter and John. Grace and peace invokes for the reader a call to the gospel itself. It's a summation of the gospel centered on life, giving its direct implications for the gospel as the message of grace and peace. On the cross, God himself takes on the punishment that you and I deserve. And yet before the foundation of the world, he set his face to love us that we might know his grace. Peace, though, is the fruit of the gospel, the cross being the place that the very wrath of God is satisfied that we might have peace with him. And we can be sure that this grace and peace is about the gospel because look at to whom it comes from. John says that this grace and peace comes from he who was and is and is to come. And if you're wondering who could ever genuinely make this claim, know that it's Jesus. The seven spirits, though, are debated among Bible scholars as some suggest that it's intended to speak to Jewish tradition of the seven angels who were chief among others, while other scholars suggest that it's intended to speak into the Roman idea of plurality. I think it's better for us, though, to remember that Revelation is an apocalyptic work that uses deep imagery to describe what is otherwise indescribable. And the number seven, I believe, is used to reflect the completeness of the work of the Holy Spirit. In verses five and six, they point us to the work accomplished by Christ for us as he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and he made us a kingdom and a priest of his God and father. And it's to him who alone belongs glory and dominion. In verses seven and eight, we see a reminder of this message of the advent that we await Christ's return. The first coming of Christ, the gospels detail as as the birth of a child to a poor, marginalized family that would go mostly unnoticed, and yet this second coming, John reveals, is one that would be impossible to ignore. Jesus' return on the clouds fulfills the coming just in the way the angels said he would in this first chapter of Acts. In verses 9 through 18, though, John is describing his vision of Jesus from the place he had been exiled to in Patmos. Uh, It's a small island on the Aegean Sea um, that is not far from Ephesus, and church tradition suggests that John had been sent there essentially just to render him ineffective after years of pastoring in Ephesus. One of the earliest commentaries on the book of Revelation suggests that on the island, John, even in his old age, had been forced to work in the mines, and though it is there then in the darkness that he encounters Jesus. So in verses 9 through 11, he writes, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And notice here that John doesn't identify himself with his apostolic authority, or that he had been with Jesus. But no, he says, I am with you even in the tribulation. To be in the spirit, though, on the Lord's day reminds us that this is anything but ordinary. But an out-of-body experience of foreseeing the day of God himself pouring out judgment. John, who hears this voice speaking to him, he turns around and this is how he describes what he sees in verses 12 through 16. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The lampstands mirrored the lampstands that were used to light the temple and worship. And rather than one stand with seven candles, this is probably a a reference to seven actual stands of candles. And standing among them, someone John describes as like the Son of Man. Uh, John, of course, is speaking of Jesus, but the Son of Man comes from an apocalyptic narrative from Daniel 7.13. Description of what he wore though, is one of a priest wearing a robe and a gold sash, and the whiteness of his hair is a reference from Daniel 7, 9 as well. And where God is described as the ancient of days, and for Jesus to come in this likeness was to prove further that Jesus is God, sharing in his beauty and his purity and his eternal nature, while his piercing eyes are a reflection that he comes in the judgment of sin. Bronze, though, was used to construct the temple's altar as the place where the sacrifice was being offered for sin and for Jesus' feet to be scribed as bronze signifies that in him alone rests the sacrifice for our sin. The voice of Jesus he says, is like rushing waters, and and his face shines brightly like the sun. And still in his right hand, he he held seven stars, and in verse 20, they are described as the angels or messengers of the seven churches to whom John writes. And to hold them in his hand, though, shows his sovereignty, but this sharp double-edged sword that came from his mouth is the pronouncement of judgment. Fam, know that the Jesus that we long for in this season of waiting is not coming again as a precious baby. He's not coming as the suffering servant or man of sorrows. But he's coming as the sovereign Lord of all, the faithful and righteous King of glory. And finally, in verses 17 to 20, we see that when I saw him, I fell at his feet through though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, and those that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John sees Jesus in this way, and immediately he falls to the ground as if he's dead. And Jesus embraces him, telling him, don't be afraid. As I thought about this verse, I couldn't help but think of the the contrast in the relationship shared between uh, Jesus and his gospel as with Jesus here in Revelation. In the gospel, John uh, often uses this language of intimacy to reflect on the close nature of their relationship. Even resting his head on the chest of Jesus and, and yet he sees Jesus here in Revelation and his response It's of reverence and fear. Jesus comes to John and he comforts him, reminding him of who he is. And who does Jesus say he is? He says, I'm the first and the last. I am the resurrected. I am the living one, the one who was dead and is now alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. I sat at my desk this week, weeping at the reality that, that this sovereign God who is victorious over all the evils of our world, who holds our world in, in the palm of his hands, who holds the keys of death and hell, also intimately knows you and I. And with his knees then trembling, I, I can imagine John trying to stand and he hears Jesus say to him again, write these things down. And so maybe you're hearing a message like this tonight and, and you're wondering where do we go from here? And I can tell you that in the very next chapter, the message to the church is actually real simple. It's called repentance. Repentance. To repent is to live a life that's been changed by him. Repentance isn't just something that happens when we come to faith in Jesus, though, but to follow Jesus means that we live each day with a heart of repentance. And I know we won't get the opportunity to go through all of the letters that are written to the churches this Advent, but just as these churches are called to repentance, we too know that we are needing of repentance. But know that 1 John 1 and 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let me just end in the place that we begin tonight and ask, does the Father truly love us? He does. And does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again among us? He does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root, and the lamb who died to ransom the slave from every people and tribe and every nation and tongue. He has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessings and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? He is. It's because he is indeed worthy that we come to the table each week to celebrate the one who is who was, and who is to come. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat at the table with some of his closest friends. And he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of sins, to do this in remembrance of me. This meal is a reminder that he alone is worthy. maybe you're with us and you you've not yet made that decision of his lordship over your life and recognize that he is worthy in this way and know that we're grateful that you're here but we also want you to know that it's okay to to abstain from this meal but if you know that he is indeed is worthy would you come with me and feast With those who are serving with me, would you come as I pray? Father, we thank you for the grace that is shown to us in this meal and the way, Father, that you, uh, in the season of Advent, call us to wait. And so, Father, we we wait with great joy. We wait with, with great hope, knowing, Father, that you... You love us and you care for us tenderly and that we get to be reminded of that truth in this meal. And Father, we thank you with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, for those who are
0: Remember, we love these rascals. This is O Sapientia by Malcolm Geit. I cannot think unless I have been thought, nor can I speak unless I have been spoken. I cannot teach except as I am taught, or break the bread except as I am broken. O mind behind the mind through which I seek. O light within the light by which I see. O word beneath the words with which I speak. O founding, unfound wisdom finding me. O sounding song whose depth is sounding me. O memory of time reminding me. My ground of being always grounding me my maker's bounding line, defining me. Come, hidden wisdom, come with all you bring. Come to me now, disguised as everything.